As Greg read, we are in Mark. We've been marching through Mark for the better part of our gatherings together, going passage by passage, and we're entering into the, the latter part of Mark. There's 16 chapters in Mark, and we are nearing the end, not quite there, but we're about midway through the um, 12th chapter. And so we are just about 75% of the way through this book. And for those who are perceptive, recognize today's October 31st, which everyone knows is Reformation Day. Yeah. So happy Reformation Day. Good to, it's good to have you here celebrating with us. Um, it was October 31st, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther took his 95 theses, his 95 disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church and nailed them to All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and he sparked this reform of bringing the church back to gospel centrality rather than gospel plus works. That is, has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to say Happy Reformation Day. <laughs> Some of you may also realize that what's going on at this time in history is the World Series. So I'm a baseball fan. I, I don't watch a ton of baseball. Played baseball growing up, played baseball into college, and enjoy baseball. I don't watch a lot of baseball. I'd rather watch football. Let's just be honest, it's a little bit more exciting for the average spectator. However, right now the World Series is going on, which is the championship of Major League Baseball. They do best of seven series, so first team to win four games wins the series. Now, the, last night the Braves won again to take a 3-1 lead, and they won late in the game because they hit a couple home runs in the seventh inning, back-to-back home runs. Home run, for those who may not know, is hitting the ball past the fence to where no one can get it. It's an automatic score. Okay, automatic point. Automatic run, if you want to use baseball terminology. Now, if you're around the game of baseball long enough, you'll recognize that there's a lot of phrases that get thrown around. And oftentimes, they are pretty big exaggerations. So if someone does hit a home run, one of the phrases they'll use is, that was a moonshot. Hit it so high, so far, basically grazed the moon. Obviously, it's exaggeration. No baseball has made it to the moon. They'll also say, if you get hit by a pitch, if the batter is at the plate and he gets hit by a pitch, they'll call it a dead ball. So no one actually dies, and the ball wasn't previously living and is dead. It's just, that's what they call it, dead ball. Someone has a really strong arm, they'll say, that guy has a laser for an arm. Not literal. Really great catcher in the back, they'll say, he's a wall back there. Nothing gets past him. So there's these big exaggerations that are used if you hang around the game of baseball long enough. And these exaggerations have a term. It's called hyperbole. And so Merriam-Webster defines hyperbole as extravagant exaggeration. Extravagant exaggeration. And we use hyperbole all the time in our day-to-day language. So when we read a passage like this, where Jesus is saying, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's easy for us to think, oh, that's probably hyperbole. So, as the question is asked by this scribe this morning, it's an age-old question, what does God expect of us? What does God require of us? Jesus gives him an answer. And one of the temptations this morning is for us to hear that answer And maybe not explicitly, but in our subconscious to kind of think that this is actually an exaggeration. exaggeration. But I would submit to you that it's not 
an exaggeration. And because God is one, because God is undivided, we must love God with complete, undivided devotion. I think that's the main thrust of the passage this morning, is that because God is one, we must love him with undivided devotion. Now, there are a few passages in Scripture that articulate this so clearly. It's one of the great things about this passage. It's known as the Great Commandment. It's explicitly clear, and Jesus takes what is said throughout the Old Testament and summarizes it. And so now, we get to see this great command, what God requires of his creation. So for those who have been with us, you know that as we've been going through Mark, there's been a consistent theme that we've been looking at, and that theme is God restoring his wayward people. God restoring his wayward people through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. And as we've gone through the recent chapters, we've seen Jesus tested more and more. They're asking him questions to try to test him. In Mark 10, we saw a question regarding the of divorce, Pharisees brought to him. In Mark 11, we saw a question regarding Jesus' authority that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders brought to him. Each time these questions are coming, they're trying to undermine his authority and they're trying to catch him up and slip him up so that his ministry can be nullified. Mark 12, we see a question regarding taxes that the Pharisees and the Herodians brought. Again in Mark 12, we see a question regarding marriage and resurrection that the Sadducees brought. So we're seeing all these different parties from the Sanhedrin coming and bringing these questions, trying to slip Jesus up. And now we're still in, in chapter 12, and we see another question. Now this is the final question in this series. And it's less facetious than the questions before it. But the, today's question is around the law. And as this scribe asks the question to Jesus, I think we're going to see three things. And you can find each of those things in your bulletin. The first is an important question. Second is an important answer. And the third is a critical distinction. An important question, an important answer, and a critical distinction. And all the preaching in the world is worth nothing if the Holy Spirit does not guide it. So let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide this time. Father, I come before you, grateful for the gift to gather. Thank you for this group of people. You have been so kind to build your church. And God, we ascribe to you praise again this morning that we get to gather around your word. Help us to be a word-centered church. And Holy Spirit, as we open up the word, we attribute to you the power to open eyes and to open ears. Please do that. For those who are in Christ, pray that you would help us to understand this passage and understand the gospel more clearly than what we currently do so that we can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength more faithfully. For those in here who may not know you, don't quite understand the gospel, Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would create understanding, that you would bring repentance, that you would soften hearts. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters across town 
at Linworth Baptist Church who are preaching this same gospel. Thank you for their faithfulness. Allow them to see fruit. Do the same for Providence Baptist Church here in Westerville and Story Presbyterian Church here in Westerville. God, we are grateful that you have entrusted your gospel to faithful brothers and sisters throughout the city. And we ask that this morning your kingdom would be proclaimed. We ask that more be brought into the kingdom through faith and repentance. God, we also pray as our nation goes to the polls this upcoming Tuesday that you would give your people wisdom. Help us to use the gift that we've been given of voting or to vote righteous leaders. God, help us to have discernment and to have wise judgment. Help us to not find our identity in a political party. Help us to trust your sovereign rule and your sovereign reign, regardless of who you put in office. Thank you for promising to watch over your people and for promising the victory. We ask for your blessing this morning as we look at this passage. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Mark 12, verse 28. Starting right there, we see an important question being asked. We see this scribe, and as a, as a reminder, we've seen scribes throughout the Gospel of Mark. But as a reminder, scribes are oftentimes Pharisees. So if you hear Pharisee, many Pharisees are also scribes. Most scribes are also Pharisees. It goes both ways. And this, this scribe in particular, Matthew 22 tells us, is a Pharisee. So Matthew 22 talks about how the Pharisees gathered and they sent this man to test Jesus. And so um, one source defines scribes as any man serving as an expert in Jewish law. So the scribes are experts in the law. We have experts in the law today, lawyers. And in fact, Matthew and Luke call this scribe a lawyer when they're giving this parallel passage. So we see this scribe, this expert in the law, coming to Jesus and asking him an important question. But the reason, at least partial, partially the reason, is because he was impressed with the way Jesus responded to all the previous questions. He's seen this. The Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin is a group of 70 plus the high priests and its religious leaders and scribes are a part of that. And so as each different group goes and tries to test Jesus and he answers their questions in a way that silences them, this scribe is impressed. He says that seeing that he answered them well, the scribe asked Jesus. And so he's impressed. Mark points that out. Matthew and Luke say that he came to test Jesus. There's almost a tension right off from the beginning there of is he testing or is he impressed? And I would, I would encourage you that it's both. He was sent by the Sanhedrin, sent by the Pharisees to, to test Jesus. But I imagine in their um, huddle as they're trying to figure out who to go, he may have said, you know what, I'd be interested in going. I've seen this guy. I'm pretty impressed with him. And so he saw that Jesus answered well. He goes to Jesus and he's sent to test him. And he asks him, An extremely important question. We see it right there in the text. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? Which is clearly an obvious question for a lawyer to ask. Which law is the most important? Which one should we be most aware of? I would submit to you that this is not hyperbole, but this scribe really does want to know. 
He, he wants to serve God. He, he wants to, to um, know what the most important law is and not break that law. The Pharisees, scribes, oftentimes Pharisees, the scribe was a Pharisee. They create laws so that they don't break laws. So they have multiple layers of defense. And so he very much so wants to know what is the most important law. And the scribe's question is important for each of us this morning because it's answering that age-old question of what does God require of his people? What does he require of his creation? What is God most concerned about? And this question has been begged all throughout salvation history. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it being brought up throughout the prophets. And we see it in the Gospels. And Jesus is answering this question. But before we go further, let's just point out, let's recognize in the text that Jesus answers this question because it was asked of him. This morning, I don't know where the whole room is. I don't know where you are individually. But please know that you can take your biggest questions to God. And oftentimes, he's waiting for you to bring them to give you an answer. Take your biggest questions to God. Kids, there's some kids in the room. Ask God your biggest questions. Ask your parents your biggest questions. God oftentimes uses parents to answer those questions. So kids, ask away. And families, encourage your kids to ask those questions. It's harmful to to be in a situation where if a child asks any kind of question, it almost feels like they're departing from the faith. We've all seen circumstances like that. Let your kids ask questions. If you don't know the answer, tell them. Hey, that's a great question. Let's, let's look into it. Don't be afraid to do that. You don't have to have all the answers. Take them to the one who does. And each of us this morning, like the scribe, have asked this question. What is the most important command of all? Christian and non-Christian. But non-Christians... If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, you too have asked this question. And the answer that you have provided, it can be found in your list of priorities. We each make room for what we prioritize the most. We prioritize things because we recognize them as valuable. And so when the scribe is asking what's the most important, it's a question that we have all asked. And we prioritize what we believe is the most important. So church, for us, let's be a place where we can ask good questions, where we can ask big questions, important questions. But let's not be a place that only asks questions. Let's be brothers and sisters who point each other to the answer, the one who provides the answers. Let's encourage each other by welcoming questions, but then also pursuing truth together. We don't want to be just a place that only asks questions. That's a dangerous place to be. But let's ask good questions. Let's point one another to the word where questions are asked. And so we see this scribe, see this Pharisee, this lawyer coming to Jesus. He's seen that Jesus has answered really well. He's impressed, but he's also coming to test. So he asked the penultimate question. There's been a whole series of questions leading up to it, and now he asked the big question. What is the most important command? 
And we see Jesus give an important answer. Look with me in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus, he's quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting a passage in Deuteronomy 6 known as the Shema. And this was what pious Jews would repeat on a daily basis. And it reads like this in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sounds very familiar. What it does is it calls Israel to listen. It says, hear, O Israel. It calls Israel to know that God is one in a culture where there were pagan gods all over the place, that there were multiple gods. He says, hear, Israel, listen. The people of God, listen. There's one God. He is one. And then it calls Israel to love him. So we must hear God. We must know that he and he alone is God. We must love God. And it describes how. It says with all your heart, with all your soul. Now the Shema says with all your might. And so there could be some confusion because Jesus said with all of your mind and your strength. They both say heart and soul. Shema says, Deuteronomy 6 says, might, but then Jesus elaborates and says, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Might, under that umbrella of might, was intellectual might and physical might. So Jesus just clarifies it for his listeners. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What Jesus is getting at is not necessarily a four-part divi- four division of how to love God, but he's getting at that we must love God with our whole person. We can't only love God 80% and save 20% for this other area, or love God 95% and save 5% for this other area, or love God 99% and save 1% for this other area. We are called to love God with our whole person with all of our affections, all of our trusts, all of our thoughts, all of our energy. It talks about our strength. All of our energy. One of the ways you can figure out if you're loving God with all of your energy is what does your schedule look like? What are you filling up your schedule with? What are you giving your energy over to? Is Jesus using hyperbole here? I'd say no. He's saying we are called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our affections called to love him with all of our soul. We're supposed to put all of our trust in him, with all of our mind. We're supposed to, to give over every thought, take every thought captive, and with all of our strength. How are we utilizing the time and the abilities that God has given us? He says all of it is to be devoted to God. Abraham Kuyper said that there's not a square inch in all of creation where the Lord God does not call out mine. Every part of it is his. He can lay his claim to every part of his creation and us as part of his creation. He wants every part of us. We cannot faithfully love God if any of those areas are lacking. Now, something to recognize 
that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's just a summary of the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. To have no other gods, to make no images of God, not to misuse the Lord's name, and to honor the Sabbath. This right here, when Jesus says the greatest commandment, he's summarizing the first four of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, known as God's moral law. He's summarizing the first four commandments there. He's saying you need to love God above all else. Those first four commandments are all vertically oriented. They're all pointing toward God, the way that we interact with God. But then, as he calls us to love God with undivided devotion, it's also, before I go any further, it's also worth noting that this undivided devotion, we've talked about it just a few minutes ago, but I also want to reiterate it because it's important. This undivided devotion is rooted in the fact that God himself is not divided. God is one. Now that's not me saying that the Trinity isn't real. The Trinity is absolutely certain. However, we, what, something that we need to be recognized, recognized is that words matter. And so God is one, but there are three persons in that one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we say God is one, we're not denying the Trinity by any means. Far be it from us to do that. But we recognize that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so because he is one, our love for him must be one. Because he's undivided, our love for him must be undivided. But then he says this, the second. Now, notice the scribes, didn't, the scribes didn't ask for the second most important. He asked for the most important. But Jesus says that it's important enough that he wants to also point out what the second most important command is. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I was reading this passage to, to Finley earlier in the week, just trying to meditate on the passage, but then also just trying to take her through it. Like, hey, let's, let's read what we're going to go over. Not that she's in here, but like, let's, let's talk about this passage. It's an important one. I started explaining it to her, and she, she says, neighbor? I said, yeah. Like, you know, like people around us. And her response, classic, is, who's our neighbor? I'm like, well, that's straight out of the parallel passage there. Like, like you are a fallen, fallen little girl, aren't you? <laughs> it's so easy for us to, to recognize that, yes, we are to love God. Of course we're to love God. Well, we're supposed to love others as well. Others are difficult. And even Finley, at that young age, is recognizing the difficulty. But we, we're no different. We just don't verbalize it as, as loudly as a three-and-a-half-year-old would. Sinclair Ferguson points this out. He says, to love God himself implies that we will also love everything which reflects him in any way. It should be, or it would be inconsistent to love God, but not those who bear his image. So when we are called to love our neighbor, that's got to be rooted in love for God. We love God, and then we love those who bear his image. And the reason we love them is because they're bearing the image of our first and primary love, God. So it's not a call to love yourself more so that you can love others better. We don't, we don't need any help loving ourselves more in most cases. The call is to love God more. As we love God more, as we love who He is, we see Him more clearly. Then as we see His image, we're able to see His image in others. And therefore, once we do that, we're able to love our neighbor 
as ourselves, as one image bearer to the other. So because God is undivided, because he is one, we're called to love him with an undivided heart. God commands him to love him with all of our being, not 99%, not 99.9%, and he's called us to love others the way that we love ourselves. It's one image bearer to the other, to consider others like we do ourselves. In verse 33, we see the scribe saying, let's actually look in verse 32. He says, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have said, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. We're going to hone in on verse 33 now. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So to fulfill these commands, to fulfill the great command to love God with all of yourself, and to love others as yourself, to do those two things faithfully is greater than any offering you can bring to God and greater than any sacrifice you can bring to Him. But if we're honest, we failed at each of those. On a daily basis, we fail at each of those. I've already failed this morning, not loving God with all my heart. Last night, woke up five times to go into Finley's room because she was having nightmares or just a tough time sleeping. I can tell you, in those moments, I was not loving God with all my heart. <laughs> I was frustrated. I've already failed at this. We all fail at this. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the only one who has perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. He alone has done that. And in doing that, Jesus becomes the righteous offering that we need. He becomes the great and final sacrifice. Look at verse 33 again. Just look at it closely. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's much more than all the offerings and sacrifices that the Old Testament, that the, the law had put in front of the people of Israel to make things right with God. To fulfill these two commands is much more than any offering or any sacrifice that can be brought to God. And only one person has done it. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He is our great offering. He is the, the most righteous offering we can put before God. He is the final sacrifice that we need. We no longer have to slay spotless lambs because the spotless lamb has been slain. Christ himself. So Christian, we are called to love God with our whole being, with every ounce of our existence. Does God have your heart? Does he have your affections? Does God have your soul, your trust, your utter dependence? Does he have your mind, the way that you think about him, the way that you think about others? Does he have your strength, your energy, what you give your time, what you give your abilities over to? Does he have your schedule as you're creating your week? Are you prioritizing the things that God has called you to prioritize? And if you're in here this morning 
maybe you're searching, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're just not sure. What has your affection, your trust, your thoughts? What has your energy? What have you devoted yourself to? If it's anything other than Christ, let me just say lovingly and candidly that you are serving a false God, a God that cannot bring salvation to you, a God that cannot take away your sin. What are you giving yourself over to? You, over to? And church, this is where we get to help one another, where the other is weak. Just said that we all fall short of this. We are all unable to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But perhaps you are doing a great job loving God with your affections right now, and your brother or sister isn't. But maybe they're doing a great job in honoring uh, the Lord with their time, with their schedule. This, that's a great opportunity to come together and say, hey, how do you do that? Help me. I acknowledge I'm falling short in this area. You seem to be doing well here. Can you just help me? Just take a posture of humility. Ask a brother or sister to encourage you in your discipleship. Let's create a culture where we do that very thing. So we've seen an important question asked by this scribe, by this lawyer. We've seen an important answer given, the, great, the greatest command, as well as the second greatest command. And so now we turn our attention to a critical distinction. So look in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So we see the questioning come to a close. No one's going to ask him any more questions, at least in in this manner, trying to to test him. But he tells the scribe that he's not far. The scribe said in verse 32, you are right, teacher. He acknowledged that Jesus, what what he's saying is right. He acknowledged him as teacher. So we see, why, why would Jesus say that you're not far? Why wouldn't Jesus say, welcome in? He's not far. Because he does acknowledge that Jesus is right. That's good. That gets him close. He's not far because he does embrace Jesus as teacher. Again, that gets him close. But that's head knowledge. To acknowledge that Jesus is right. To acknowledge that Jesus is a good teacher. And we'll oftentimes hear today that, yeah, I I think Jesus' teachings were great. But I don't think he's the, the only way. We hear that. I think Jesus had a lot of good things to say. Um, do I think that dogmatically he's the only way to get, get to, to God? Eh, I don't know. We hear that out there. But I would encourage you that the reason that this scribe was not far, the reason this scribe was close, was because he only took in the head knowledge. He did not bring any action to it. He didn't throw himself and depend on Christ as his Savior. He acknowledged him as teacher. He said he's right. But he did not look to him and embrace him as Savior. And in order to be in the kingdom of God, you must embrace Jesus as teacher and as Savior. If you go into a hospital, say they have their ICU, their intensive care unit. Some hospitals call it their CCU, their critical care unit, critical care, life or death situation. This difference in understanding is critical, is life or death. 
if we understand Jesus to be teacher, but not savior, death. If we understand Jesus to be quote unquote savior, but don't submit to him as teacher, same thing leads to death. We need to embrace him both as teacher and as savior. Again, only teacher would lead to hypocrisy. Oh yeah, everything you say is great without realizing that he said that you must depend on me. Everything you say is great, but I'm not depending on you. Well, that's just hypocrisy. But if you say he's my savior, but I'm not going to submit to his teaching, well, that's also hypocrisy. You need to see that we need both of those things. We need his teaching, and we need to depend on him as savior. Non-Christian, what is keeping you from embracing Jesus as teacher and as savior? It's one thing to acknowledge that some of the things that Jesus said are true. That's good. We want you to do that. We need to look to the word. Jesus is the word incarnate. We need to look to God's word for our teaching. That's how discipleship happens. We want to be a word-centered church. We need to look at the word. But to only look at the word and not depend on Christ, that's not going to lead to salvation. We need to look at the word, to allow it to lead our discipleship, and throw ourselves on Jesus. Otherwise, we're misunderstanding the word. If it doesn't lead to us throwing ourselves on Christ, Tim Keller addresses this. He says, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Nat Smethers, in the same way, says, if Jesus was just a good teacher then I'm afraid you're just a bad listener. Jesus must be more than a teacher. The scribe, for the scribe, Jesus was a teacher. And that's good, that got him close. But to close the gap, we need to embrace Jesus as teacher and as Savior. Church, this is what we come in for. We need one another in this discipleship process. We need one another to point to Jesus as our great teacher. We need to follow after him with undivided devotion. And as we fall, which we will, as we fall short in that, we also need to remind one another that Jesus is our Savior too. That his shed blood and his broken body has covered all of our shortcomings. Otherwise, we'll just be a legalistic group of people who gather together and like to build head knowledge. We must remind one another that Jesus is in fact our teacher. Take his teaching seriously. But he is also our Savior. He's the one who covers our sin, our fallenness. So this morning, because God is one, because he is undivided, we must love him with undivided devotion. True love for God requires our whole person. And if we love God truly, then we'll also love those who bear his image. We'll love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For if he does not love his brother, excuse me, whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we claim to love God, we love those who bear his image. But here's the thing. Jesus alone has, has done this perfectly. We fall short in it every day. Jesus alone has loved God with undivided devotion. When he was tested, 
he succeeded. Too, too often, when we get tested, we fall. We beat ourselves up, and then we never go back to the Savior. Jesus was the only one to succeed every test taken his way. He was the only one to love God with undivided devotion. And Jesus was the only one to love his neighbor as himself by giving himself up for us so that we may be brought into communion with God. Jesus' undivided devotion and his love for the Father fueled his love for you and me. His love for God fueled his love for neighbor. Now, it would be good as we near the end of Mark, we're almost three-fourths of the way through, to ask the question of yourself, am I near the kingdom now or am I in it? One of the things we like to do is walk through each passage. We get to learn about who God is. We want, we want to learn about who God is. That's the way that we faithfully worship him. But a good question to ask as we come to the close here is, am I near the kingdom of God like the scribe or am I in it? Am I depending on Christ as teacher and not savior or am I depending on him as teacher and savior? And anyone who would call on him as their Lord, as their teacher, as their savior, he will welcome in to perfect communion with God because it requires perfect devotion, 100% heart, soul, mind, strength. That's what God requires of us. And the bad news is, is that we have all fallen short of that. But one has not. And he's willing to give you his perfect righteousness if you would call on him as teacher and call on him as Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for Jesus as our great teacher and our great Savior. Help us to love you faithfully. Help us to love you with all of our heart, all of the affections that are inside of us. Have them be rooted in you. With all of our soul, Lord, help us to trust you with all of our minds. Lord, help us to take every thought captive and bring it under the rule and reign of Christ. Lord, with all of our strength, help us devote our energy and our schedules to you. And when we fall short of that, when we don't do that perfectly, protect us from throwing in the towel and giving up. But in those moments, remind us of our Savior. Help us to confess our sin, to turn from our sin and to embrace Jesus's finished work rather than our failed work. Thank you for our great teacher and savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.